Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Out there with, uh, I grew up in St. Louis and this is what Christmas looked like every year. Uh, It is eight days till Christmas. So I'm curious, how many of you have your shopping done for Christmas? How many of you? Good. Oh, a lot of you. How many of you have not started your shopping for Christmas? Okay, all right, we got two honest, three honest people here. That's fantastic. I love it. So it is eight days till Christmas, but it's also 322 days from another big event. Anyone know what's going on in 322 days? On November 5th, 2024, it will be the presidential election. And uh, I know you've probably heard in the news or seen some of the debates that are going on, the the presidential debates, and and it almost feels like the election is happening next month, but it's not. It's happening like 10 months from now, right? In in Canada, uh, I think there is like a 50-day limit to a campaign, which sounds so glorious, doesn't it? Um, I know Trump declared like two years in advance, and I know another candidate, Nikki Haley, declared a year and a half in advance, Um, but it's just like, it's already ramping up, and and it's amazing how much money is spent on these presidential elections. So just to give you perspective, the new Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee, which was the newest building I could think of, it's where the Bucks play, it's beautiful, cost $1.2 billion to build. In 2016, the campaign for president spent $5 billion dollars. 2020, four years later, spent $14 billion, almost three times as much. can only imagine how much it will be this presidential cycle, over $20 billion probably. It's, it's crazy, but, but have you ever thought, why is it that we are so passionate about who is elected president of the United States? Why is it that we spend so much of our time and our energy and our money and our passion pouring into the next presidential candidate. Why is this such a big deal for us? And I think it's because deep inside, all of us are longing for a good king. We want a king that is bigger than us and more powerful than us, who will keep us safe from our enemies, who will make us prosper, and who will make all the wrongs of the world right again. This longing for such a king is innately wired into every heart by our creator. And while politics are very important and Christians have a duty to engage in politics diligently and faithfully, time has proven again and again and again that our longing for a good king is never satisfied in a human ruler. In fact, It is a longing that can only be satisfied 
and God himself. If you would, please open up to Micah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it is page 778 in the red Bible. If you don't have a red Bible, it's near the middle of the Bible, kind of-ish, but Micah chapter 5. And Micah was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he is writing to the people of God who are in need of a hero and who long for a better king that will rescue them from the situation that they find themselves in, which we'll talk about more here in a little bit. So let's start just by reading through the passage, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through the first part of 5. And then just keep your Bibles open for the entirety of this sermon because we'll look back at it. Micah 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this Advent Christmas season in which we get to once again focus our attention on the glory of the incarnation, that you, our God, became a man for us to rescue us and deliver us. And so God, Again, we pray, our our hearts are so distracted, so prone to wander. Focus our hearts on the true joy of Christmas. Focus our hearts on Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we look forward to Christmas for many reasons. We look forward to, you know, Christmas lights and Christmas cookies and Christmas presents and Christmas bacon and Christmas talent shows, but Most of all, uh, we look forward to Christmas because we look forward to cherishing Christ, who loved us so much he came to rescue us. And, And just as we look back to that glorious day of the birth of Christ with great hope and joy, the people of God in the Old Testament looked forward to that glorious day in which the Christ would be born. And they looked forward to that day with great hope and great joy. The weary people of God in the Old Testament We're longing for the day that God would send his king that would make all things new again. From Micah chapter five, I want to look at three aspects of this long-awaited, anticipated king. I want to look at our need for a new king, God's promise of a new king, and then Jesus' reign as the new king. Our need, God's promise, and Jesus' reign as a new king. First, our need for a new king. Israel's 
history with kings is a little bit complicated. You see, for much of Israel's history, they did not have a king. We just got done with the book of Joshua. They did not have a king in the book of Joshua. They did not have a king in the book of Judges. But at the end of Judges, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people started crying out. They wanted a king like the nations. Now, there was two fatal flaws with this demand of the people. One is that God was their king, and so asking for a king like the nations was saying, God, we don't want you as king. We want a person as our king. The second fatal flaw is that the king of the nations were not that great. So I'm not sure what they were longing for, but they wanted a king that was like all the other nations. They wanted a king in the flesh. And so God gave them what they asked for. God gave them a king like the nations. God gave them a king named Saul. And it did not go very good for the people of God. There was a lot of death, a lot of destruction because of it. After King Saul, there was King David, who was a man after God's own heart. He was probably the greatest king of Israel. And yet, through David also came death and destruction and division in the people of God. After King David was his his son Solomon, who was wise, who, who wrote a lot of scripture, who was great until he wasn't, and chased after other gods and and, and women of other gods and, and built idols to other gods and, and, and divided the people of God in half. And then we get to 930 BC and the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, all because the kings of Israel went their own way. They chased after other gods. The kings of the north, by and large, were just bad kings all throughout. All throughout, they, they worshiped foreign gods, they rebelled against the Lord, they treated their people horrible, and God had warned them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to repent and to return to the Lord, and the kings refused to do so. So in 722 BC, and that's an important date, for 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and defeated the northern uh, part of Israel as an instrument of God to bring discipline and judgment upon them. That happened in 722 BC, and they get exiled throughout the Assyrian Empire. Now, the southern kingdom was a little bit better. Uh, the kings of, of, of the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, were, were mixed. They, they were some good, some bad, some faithful, some unfaithful, and they were slowly fading away from the Lord. And so in 700 BC, 22 years after the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, Micah writes to the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And he writes to them to bring charges against their leaders for not following the Lord and for treating the people of God in a despicable manner. Micah 3 tells us that the political leaders did not know justice. They hated good. They loved evil. And they even chopped up God's people like meat in a pot. But the corruption doesn't end with the political leaders. It also spread to the religious leaders. Micah 3 tells us that they misused their prophetic office for political gain and to lead the people away from the Lord. And then in Micah chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, and I think we have it up here on the screen, it says this about the leaders of Israel, of Judah. It says, its heads, their religious and political leaders, give judgment for a bride. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets Practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster should come upon us. In other words, they selfishly exploit the people of God and they presume on the grace of God that He will not bring discipline or judgment upon them. 
And it continues in verse 12, it says, Therefore, because of you, the shady and corrupt leaders of Israel, Zion, which is another name for Israel, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house of wood, wooded height. Here's the thing. This is, this is where it kind of all comes together, is that when Micah is writing this prophecy to Judah, the southern part of Israel, he's writing it to the king of Jerusalem. And at this point in time, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian military. Some guess around 180,000 soldiers are outside the walls of Jerusalem. And that just 20 years earlier, they wiped out the northern kingdom. And so Micah is warning the king, warning King Hezekiah that if he does not repent and turn back to the Lord, that God will bring his judgment upon them through the Assyrians. And so you can imagine how panicked these people were, how desperate they were. They were in great distress. They were greatly outnumbered. And so it's into this context that Micah writes this. Let's look back at verse 1. He says, and this is the Lord speaking through Micah. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. It's mocking Israel. Clearly, they cannot beat the Assyrians through their puny military. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That is like a slap across the face. It's a metaphor for humiliation of Israel's king. Israel wanted a king like all the other nations. And the human kings they had time and time and time and time again had failed them. Does that sound familiar to you? The bad kings, which were the majority of the kings of Israel, were selfish, worshiped idols, exploited people. The good kings, they ruled for a time, but they too had their mistakes and they all eventually died. Bernard Baruch was one of the most successful political and presidential advisors in history. During the 20th century, his economic and wartime politics uh, helped America get through World War I, the Great Depression, and even World War II. And when he was asked what advice he would give on what presidential candidate to vote for, he said this. He said, vote for the man who promises the least. He'll be the least disappointing. Bernard Baruch was not being pessimistic. He was being realistic. Bernard knew that even the very best kings of this world, the very best kings of this world are flawed. They're finite. They're limited in their abilities and their powers. They will always let us down. You know, we love to romanticize past presidents, don't we? Like George Washington or Ronald Reagan or Abraham Lincoln. Like Abraham Lincoln was the best ever, but he had the worst approval rating of any president. Our fundamental problem with earthly authority is that they are not God. They are sinful, limited, selfish, just like you and me. Sadly, many Christians today place their hopes and dreams on the political leaders, hopes and dreams that can only be fulfilled by God himself. And when they do this, you'll find out they get very angry, very bitter, very hostile towards those who disagree with them. This Christmas season and this election season is a great time to ask the question, 
What king are you resting your hopes on? Is it a political king that you think will make all your dreams come true? Maybe it, is, maybe it is the king of your employment. You're hoping to work your way to the top to give you the salvation you're hoping for. Maybe it is a romantic relationship. Maybe, it is a, maybe it's, it's, it's success in some other part of your life that you're saying, I am going to spend my life serving this king, hoping that it will give me everything I dreamed of. What we learn from this passage is that all our earthly kings will let us down, that we need a better king, a wiser king, a more compassionate king, a king that will protect us, and a king who loves us enough to care. And so Micah 5.1 reminds us that we need a new king. And in verse 2, God promises us this new king. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In the midst of Jerusalem being surrounded by the Assyrians, Micah prophecy takes a strange turn and shifts the view of the camera five and a half miles south to a little tiny town called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was so small that in Joshua chapter 15, when it's listing out the towns of Judah, it does not even mention Bethlehem because it is so tiny. Now, the little town of Bethlehem is important because this is where King David was born. And, and we are reminded by, by the birthplace of this coming king of Bethlehem that, that it was promised to David that from his line shall come a king whose kingdom will have no end. But the little town of Bethlehem was also important because of its size. Again, in the book of Nehemiah, Bethlehem was so small that even there it's not even counted as one of the cities of Judah. It's just a small, hillbilly, insignificant town in the world's eyes. It reminds me of Tony, Wisconsin. Have any of you been to Tony, Wisconsin? Anyone? It's, it's not a one-stop light town. It's a zero-stop light town. But when you go into, go drive through Tony, Wisconsin, there's a huge billboard that says, home of Jim Leonard, right, if you know who that is. And so that's like their claim to fame. Bethlehem is this tiny little itty-bitty town that really no one knows all that much about. And the reason why this is so important is because when Micah says that the king that is to come will be born in the town of Bethlehem, it is very specific. He's not saying the king will be born uh, north of the equator, right? He's not saying the king will be born in Israel or in Judah or even in Jerusalem. No, he says it will be, he will be born in this very small, teeny, tiny town. And so when someone would come and claim to be the Christ, claim to be the Messiah, they could say, where were you born? Not in Bethlehem? Okay, you are not the Messiah. You know, it's interesting when the wise men come from the east in the Christmas story to find this newborn king. King Herod asks where this, this king would have been born. He asks the Jewish religious leaders, and they say this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. And I think we have it on the screen. I'm not sure. But it says this. They told him, in Bethlehem, it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is mind-blowing because both his mom and dad, uh, stepdad, I guess you could say, were uh, living up in Galilee. Mary was pregnant with Jesus. There's no way that she would have any desire to take an 80-mile hike to have her baby born in Bethlehem. Certainly, she would have loved to give birth to her child in her home in Nazareth. But then Caesar Augustus has this idea, right? He wants to have this census throughout all the land, and everyone has to go to their hometown for this census. And so Mary and Joseph, who are both descendants of King David, go back to their hometown that little hometown of Bethlehem, where, of course, Jesus was born. This is amazing because although the census may have been the whim of Caesar Augustus, it was the detailed will of God. God orchestrated the entire Roman Empire in order to deliver on this promised king who would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Now, what do we find out about this ruler to come who will rescue Israel? The Lord says from Bethlehem will come this ruler in Israel who is, he says, quote, for me. Not a ruler for themselves or for, for gain or fame, but for God and for the purposes of God and the mission of God. Micah 5, 2 continues. It says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This word ancient days is the Hebrew word holam. And it is used in the Bible to describe the everlasting existence of God. For example, in Psalm 92, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or before you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting, holam, to everlasting, holam, you are God. And now here, Micah is saying, this coming king is an ancient king. He is an everlasting king, which means he is a divine king. It means it is God that is coming in the flesh. Micah continues in verse 3. It says, Therefore he, the Lord, shall give them up, that is Judah, into exile, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers, including the northern kingdom, shall return to the people of Israel. So while verse 2 prophesies the coming of the king, verse 3 prophesies what is going to happen before that king returns. That Judah will indeed be conquered, will indeed be exiled, and that God will indeed bring them back into the promised land before the promised king arrives. For seven centuries, Israel was looking for that promised king. The Syrian empire came and went. The Babylonian empire came and went. The Persian Empire came and went. Even the Greek Empire came and went. And the Roman Empire took over. The people of God waited with great anticipation. And finally, the king had come. In that little town of Bethlehem, just as God had promised. Not with a lot of fanfare. Not with a royal welcome from the people, although the angels rejoiced. But in that little town... The divine king was born and his everlasting reign began. So Micah 5 reminds us, just to recap, our need for a new king because all earthly kings fail us because they're just like us. It also reminds us that promise of the new king who would be the ancient of days born in the little town of Bethlehem to serve the purposes of God and to accomplish the rescue plan of God. 
Finally, Micah 5 tells us about the reign of this new king. You know, what would this king be like? Would, would this king rule with an iron fist? Would they be a military warrior, a political messiah? What kind of king would this be? Verse four, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. He will shepherd his flock. How will we do this? In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The spiritual and political leaders of Israel were often referred to as shepherds. God had put them in place of leadership to serve the people of God, to be a servant of God to the people of God, to care for the people of God. But instead, as we said earlier, they, they twisted their role and they used their position for their own selfish gain. Ezekiel 34, if you want to read through that detail, it's just how wicked the shepherds of Israel were. It says that they did not feed their sheep, but used their food to gorge themselves, to fatten themselves up. That the shepherds did not help the sick or the weak or the injured, but left them to die. That the shepherds ruled with harshness and with force. The shepherds scattered the sheep, making them pray for their enemies. And then at the end of Ezekiel 34, it summarizes it like this. Ezekiel 34, verse 15 through 24 says this. The Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And then skips to verse 23 and says, And I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And then we get to the New Testament. And we're told that the people of God are like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, one of my mom's favorite presidential pictures, one of the most endearing presidential pictures is a picture uh, in the office, Oval Office, during JFK's presidency. And uh, you probably are familiar with this one, but there's John F. Kennedy looking very presidential, doing, you know, presidential paperwork, probably. I don't know. Maybe he's playing Wordle. But it looks like he's doing something presidential. And then, you know, underneath there is JFK Jr. underneath the desk. And uh, when he was asked about this, JFK Jr. said, I can remember playing under that big wooden desk in his office. My mother didn't like us to chew gum, so we'd go into his office, and he'd feed us gum, and we'd hide out under the desk. Can you imagine how secure of a feeling that would be to be under that desk, to be surrounded by secret service, to be at the feet of the most powerful man in the world, who also happens to be your father? Christian, the Lord is God over all and yet you are his child. And Jesus is the shepherd king every human heart 
longs for. Jesus is the shepherd king that not only has the power, but also the love to rescue us, to care for us, to nourish us, to protect us, and to secure us in his love. The mission of this shepherd king continues in verse 5, the first part there. Look there with me. And it says, and he shall be their peace. Now, this is a fascinating statement because it does not say the shepherd king will bring them peace, but it says that the shepherd king shall be their peace. If you remember when Jesus was born and the angels appeared to the shepherds, they sang glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What does it mean that this shepherd king not only brings us peace, but is our peace? There's a story uh, from 1962 of two missionaries, Don and Carol Richardson, that moved to West Papua, Indonesia. And the Richards began to explain the good news about Jesus. Um, But the Sawi tribe that they were ministering to actually held up Judas as the hero because they loved the villain. Uh, These were a really wicked people. They would actually befriend someone from another tribe uh, just so that they could betray them and then eat them in a cannibalistic feast after they betrayed them. This is how wicked the people were. Well, there was a battle that broke out between the Sawi tribe and another tribe. And after the battle went on for a while, they decided to make peace with this other tribe. And the way that they made peace at that time is that someone from the Sawi tribe would take one of their children, one of their sons, and give them to the other tribe. And this child was called the peace child. And so finally the missionaries realized this is the picture of the gospel because Jesus is our peace child. He is the shepherd king who has come not just to bring us peace, but he is our peace. He is the price of peace. And we see the peace that he brings if we just flip over, flip over to Micah chapter seven, just two chapters later in verse 18. This is the peace that is promised by God through this coming king. Micah seven, verse 18 and 19. It says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins. You you will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Christians, we are at war by nature. We are at war with one another. We're at war with our brothers and sisters. We're at war with other countries. We're at war with people all around us. But most of all, we are at war with God because of our sin. And yet our heavenly father gave his one and only son to his enemy, to us, to pardon our iniquity, to satisfy his righteous anger for our sin, and to fulfill his steadfast love. Jesus is our peace child. He is not only the prince of peace. Jesus is the price of peace. Romans 5 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd promised in Micah chapter 5 that would come and provide himself as the peace offering on the cross for our sin and then rise again to give us newness of life so that we can dwell secure in him and with him for all eternity. 
let me end with this. After Micah was written, uh, Judah's leaders actually repented, and the Lord preserved them uh, and, and fended off the Assyrian Empire. And, and the Lord preserved Judah for, for over 100 years, but once again, kings came and kings went, and they were a mix of good and a mix of bad. A lot of them uh, were unfaithful to the Lord. But God was faithful to his promise. The Babylonians came in as an instrument of God's judgment, exiled the people of Judah throughout the empire, but God brought the people back to the promised land of Israel and gave them the king that their souls longed for, gave them the king that provided for their greatest need. In a minute, we're gonna sing a song that says, this is Jesus, king of glory, here to rescue from the fall, son of God who comes to save us, Prince of Peace and Lord of all. You know, we have talked about our longing for a new king, our need for a new king, the promise of a new king, and God's provision of a new king. But let me ask, have you made Jesus king of your life? Friends, this upcoming November, you may vote for Donald Trump. You may vote for Joe Biden. You may vote for someone else. Who knows, maybe you'll vote for Pedro. That's what I would suggest. But the only one who can make all your dreams come true, there's only one. There's only one king whose reign ends happily ever after. And that is King Jesus. In Revelation chapter 19, we read about when this king comes back again. And we long look forward to his second coming, just as the people of God in the Old Testament look forward to his first coming. And when he returns, he will come on a white horse. He will be called faithful and true. And it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you are here today and you have not trusted Jesus as your king, my hope is that this Christmas, you would receive the greatest Christmas gift of all, that you would receive Jesus and that he would become your everything. Jesus is the promised king. He is a powerful king. He's a good king, a dependable king, a loving king, a faithful king, an everlasting king. Jesus is the Christmas king. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you did not leave us to our own ruin, that you did not leave us to human authorities and rulers and kings to, to rescue us and to save us, but that you sent your son, the promised king, into the world to give us peace with you today and for all eternity. God, pray this Christmas season we would bow and worship our king. And it's in his name we pray, amen.